Yeah, I think this is like popular explanation, even uh, that uh, Medvedev is uh, kind of doing this because he's drunk. And uh, I saw when I was in France uh, this summer for vacation, I saw French television and they had some uh, refugee, Russian uh, kind of uh, journalist, female journalist who said this is basically about Medvedev, that he, this, uh, he's basically alcoholic and so on. This mm -hmm. was explanation given about his statements. And I think this is a misrepresentation of, 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 of this uh, because his, his, uh, Posts in Telegram, social media, is, I think, very significant. Kind of, and they should not be dismissed uh, mm -hmm. you know, as, as uh, just uh, some kind of uh, drunken uh, kind of um, talk. Because I think he's uh, for a number of reasons. Because he's not only former president of Russia, but he's also deputy head of National Security Council. And so, and his uh, kind of posts, which which he said that Russia could uh, could take away so Odessa and other regions like Mykolaiv and even Kyiv, I think this is, I think, very serious and very omnibus development. Welcome to Artifact number 51. I have back with me Professor Ivan Kachinovsky, his professor of political science at the University of Ottawa in Canada. And we're going to be discussing something that has not really been in the news uh, as much lately due to the recent uh, conflict in Palestine, which is the Ukraine war. There have been some interesting developments. Uh, as to, for instance, the specifics of the Maidan massacre, which uh, occurred uh, actually when we recorded our show, I believe it was February 20th, uh, uh, 2023, which was the nine-year anniversary of the Maidan massacre. So there, there have been some interesting developments corroborating uh, uh, large chunks of Professor Kachinovsky's research on the topic. We're going to discuss the future of Ukraine. We're going to discuss the current status of the war. And I said this in the first show, but I want to just emphasize this again. One thing that I like about Professor Kachinovsky is he's a sort of dissident that, you know, it's a kind of a dissident that I could respect in the sense that he was a dissident in the Soviet Union, Ukraine, and the USSR. Uh, during his student days, right, he was a pro-democracy, protester, pro-human rights, anti-censorship, things that were becoming more and more in vogue in the 1980s in the USSR. And after the collapse of the USSR, he wasn't one of those uh, Soviet dissidents that then suddenly decided, you know what? Russia, 1995, or Ukraine, 1994, this is exactly what I've been working for my entire life, and then just kind of let go any activism. He continued on, and he still remains a dissident today. In my personal opinion, if you have the psychological orientation to be a dissident, you should be a dissident for the rest of your life because we need you. This applies to the arts. This applies to politics. If you solve one problem, there should be a thousand other problems for you to solve after the fact, because if you run out of problems and solutions, honestly, what's the point of living? So uh, I, I just want to like start, uh, I guess, with uh, the, the Gaza conflict. And since that's been in the news, what exactly would the implications be for Ukraine? Is the attention just going to now completely ebb from Ukraine? Is it, um, is it going to be a problem in terms of funding? We're already seeing some cracks uh, in terms of Republican support for funding Ukraine. And 
obviously with the way that America is, there, there's still a kind of element of austerity involved where uh, if we fund one war, if we pay attention to one place, we're going to just necessarily pay less and less attention elsewhere. So maybe we could just start a little bit uh, with, with that aspect of things. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, the conflict in Gaza has a tremendous impact uh, on the war in Ukraine and on the future of this uh, conflict, which is, I think, would have major implications not only to Ukraine, but also to the European Union and to countries like the United States and the West in general and NATO in general because of what's going on in terms of the outcome of this conflict and the nature of this war. And I think uh, I can say, based on my own personal observations, uh, there was a big decline in uh, attention given to Ukraine, both by politicians, by the government officials in the West, in the United States, in Canada, in, in the European Union, and also a lot of uh, significant decline of the media attention, which is, was very important for Zelensky personally, because he's... Uh, came from an kind of entertainment industry. So for him, attention basically to be in the limelight, kind of to be the center attention, and to, again, to be on uh, all the major kind of major uh, media outlets, giving television interviews and so on. So he, this is was kind of his uh, time, kind of, and his uh, kind of, uh, I think, uh, well, I think what he could, considered to be his uh, kind of life dream, basically, and fulfillment to, to achieve such status. And now uh, he is basically is replaced by events in Gaza and in, again in Israel, which I think started very important um, conflict itself with a lot of implications also to how Ukraine voice perceived outside of Ukraine, because uh, media attention obviously is declining since uh, in the United States, Israel is traditionally is much more important in terms of history and in terms of connections compared to Ukraine. And so this is one of the reasons why there was such decline. But I think another reason was uh, kind of a much, how to say, a much more significant uh, human rights relations and what's going on in terms of destruction taking place in in, in Gaza in, in, and also killings of, by Hamas uh, of Israelis, uh, civilians and so on at the start of the conflict, which uh, had, again, very significant impact in terms of, again, human rights relations and, and, and actually which I think eclipse what was going on in terms of the uh, civilian casualties in Ukraine because now Again, I'm not expert in in in, in Gaza and Palestine and Israel, but according to various media reports, again uh, cited by New York, kind of United States, uh, Nations sources, I think uh, which are regarded as uh, maybe kind of uh, cited very widely. Actually, now number of civilian casualties is much uh, now in 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 just in Gaza exceeded a number of civilian casualties in the entire in the entire war. In in Ukraine, uh, for again, which was very significant, especially children and so on, and, and I think this is a very significant impact. How this war is perceived, uh, not only uh, again in uh, in Ukraine itself, because in Ukraine there was not much coverage of this conflict, but I think it was a very significant impact on how Ukraine uh, war is perceived outside of Ukraine, specifically in the Western countries, in the United States, which were which provided much uh, funding for Ukraine, but also European Union. And also countries of the South and, and uh, Middle East, which which uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and other countries, which were uh, I think uh, in Asia and Latin America, which were I think crucial to kind of to this conflict because uh, Western countries tried to uh, kind of uh, 
persuade their public opinion and their governments in favor of supporting Ukraine, but now I think it will be much more difficult, and this is now recognized universally that this will be much more difficult to kind of uh, to provide funding to uh, the Ukrainian government, military uh, uh, funding, uh, military support, including weapons to, to, the, to Ukraine because of the conflict in, uh, in Gaza and implications of this conflict. Yeah, and just to emphasize some of what you said, when it comes to civilian casualties in, in Gaza, it's now uh, well over 11,000. Um, well, most of those, rather, are civilian casualties. I think uh, the estimated number of Hamas militants is uh, something like well under 1,000. I mean, that could change, but if 75% of the casualties thus far are uh, children and women, right? It stands to reason that the other 25% of adult males, probably most of them are not Hamas f f fighters uh, either, right? They're just part of the indiscriminate shelling. In terms of like rate uh, of casualties versus Ukraine, so we have a still under 10,000 uh, civilian casualties in Ukraine, and here it's over 11,000. So we're talking about a pace of something like almost uh, 20 to 25 times uh, faster in terms of death rate. And obviously the death rate in Ukraine is well under a thousand and um, you know a substantial chunk so far of the confirmed deaths are, are are children in Gaza as well as under the rubble right which are not counted yet as deaths but most likely will be deaths um, that brings it up to closer to like somewhere between a third and half and uh it's an interesting observation that you made about in terms of like what the U.S. sees as its geo, you know, strategic uh, interest in the sense that, you know, we had Obama, who was a very mainstream figure, a popular figure, and one of his reasons for not arming Ukraine to the same level that Trump and Biden did was, you know what, like, you know, we might want Ukraine on our side, but it's not really our core geopolitical interest, even in that region. Uh, so we need to sort of like let it go, not get really involved with Russia, right? This is kind of like you know, in their sphere of influence was uh, the way that maybe that he would put it. Um, and when it comes to something like Israel, right, moving away from Israel is still very costly for American politicians. Uh, you know, in the end, who knows how, how that's going to play out. But, you know, it, it's worth thinking about. Uh, in your estimation, do you think that Ukraine is being forced to play these like little like geopolitical games that maybe it's going to come back to haunt them. Because like one thing I did notice last year was uh, Zelensky, he went on social media, he went on Twitter, and he publicly congratulated Netanyahu on his election last year. And he said it in some terms like, oh, you know, um, uh, Netanyahu shows us exactly how democracy looks like. This is real democracy. And I mean, th this, this would make Zelensky look very clownish because, I mean, nobody liked really Netanyahu even then, especially not now. Uh, there's now this, you know, kind of a thing going on with Russia, where Russia is taking a more pro-Palestine position, not just nominally, but also just actively in some of the things that it's doing. It's uh, seen Hamas leaders uh, by Putin several times already, and uh, you know, th there's always this possibility of things going haywire. Like, is Ukraine being sort of forced to take sides in something that um, maybe can't really find a way to negotiate it itself out of in the future? I think uh, your observation about Obama policy towards Ukraine in 2014, I think, is very important and, uh, and uh, I think very relevant to the current um, war kind of, and, and U.S. policy towards Ukraine and support for, for the current Ukrainian government of Zelensky. Because when uh, when this conflict started in 2014 in Ukraine and uh, Russia intervened and like Crimea and 
and uh, supported separatists in Donbass. So again, it was a very dangerous development then, but um, uh, there was no war between Russia and Ukraine, even so there was a significant possibility of such war taking place. And specifically, uh, one issue why this did not happen is because the Obama administration told uh, uh, then uh, Maidan leaders who came to power in Ukraine after the violent overthrow of the Yanukovych government, they specifically told them not to uh, resist Russia, Russian annexation of Crimea. By 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 military means, and this is why there was kind of um, basically mostly peaceful. Uh, just uh, I think two people were killed during this um, uh, kind of annexation of Crimea, which was pro-Russian in terms of its attitudes and supported uh, joining Russia for a long time in the 1990s and and especially after the Maidan. But I think uh, I and for this reason again it was a very dangerous situation, and I uh, warn about possibility, a real possibility of war between Russia and Ukraine, especially in the months coming for, before the Russian invasion, because I expected this uh, could happen. Even so, many people I think most people do not believe this would be the case. But um, when the war started, I think. I, I expected that this, uh, again, that Zelensky and, uh, would basically continue Poroshenko policy to make a deal with Russia to stop this war because, again, uh, Ukraine would not be able to defeat Russia militarily. It was quite obvious for a very significant time, even with Western weapons, with Western support. But um, I think it was very kind of difficult to predict for me, for me that uh, Western countries would resort to kind of proxy war, basically kind of uh, blocking peace deal and uh, in Ukraine and uh, and uh, forcing or kind of making or pressuring Zelensky into accepting this uh, proxy war, which again for the West is also very defeating because uh, Russia, for Russia, this is a much more significant conflict compared to the United States and Russia has made the advantage and this has now become obvious that uh, that uh, proxy war, I think, would be not in the interest of Ukraine. And for this reason, again, a policy of Ukraine, including foreign policy, uh, now to a large extent is dictated by, by its total dependence on the West. That's why uh, Ukraine basically uh, supported all resolutions of the voting in the United Nations almost in all cases along, along uh, with the United States um, concerning, I think there was last resolution concerning, um, I think, um, uh, concerning, uh, I think, West Bank or something, or kind of Israel, in which Ukrainian delegation voted uh, with majority of other countries, but in previous resolutions, it, it voted along with the United States even, so there was very few countries supporting such uh, such resolutions concerning Israel, so and Zelensky made explicit decision to support Israel in this conflict, and he wanted even to visit um, uh, Israel, and initially, Israeli government told him that this is not the time for the visit. And um, uh, later, just a um, few, few, I think, a few days ago, there was an uh, announcement that Zelensky was planning to visit uh, Israel, um, but uh, kind of um, he had to cancel his visit because of a media leak. So he wanted to to make this visit like a public event, kind of to show support and unexpected again to be again in the limelight. But uh, media, Israeli media reported this in advance, and for this reason, he canceled this visit to Israel, which again shows uh, kind of open policy of supporting uh, Israel in this conflict, um, kind of without any uh, kind of any objections or any kind of reservations. 
and also and following the state's policy in this regard. And also, uh, Zelensky still says that he wants to visit Israel, and he might uh, do this specifically to offer support, uh, kind of to Israeli kind of policy and to Israeli, Israeli government. And uh, relations between him and Netanyahu was not quite uh, how to say, oh, kind of quite. Um, how to say, fond, or how to say, quite friendly for a long time because mm -hmm. Israel, after the start of the Russian invasion, if you can, it tried to be kind of more neutral. It refused to provide military support to Ukraine in contrast to the Western countries because it wanted to, to again, to preserve relations with Russia, specifically in, in terms of Syria, kind of unavoid confrontations with Russia in Syria because Russia has uh, anti aircraft kind of weapons uh, systems in Syria, which can be used again uh, uh, against Russian military planes, uh, bombing uh, Syria, kind of um, uh, various um, kind of installations, various places and uh, kind of uh, uh, locations and so on in Syria. And for this reason, uh, kind of uh, Israel did not want to kind of um, kind of uh, explicitly support uh, Ukraine in this conflict, and uh, Zelensky now tried to basically sway Israel in uh, in supporting Ukraine, providing military weapons. But uh, this would be again very difficult for Israel to do because of the conflict. So they would not provide any of this Iron Dome anti uh, kind of anti aircraft anti missile system, which is again uh, would not be also very useful in case of Ukraine because uh, of uh, types of um, of weapons are used uh, by Russia, which much more advanced compared to to this uh, Palestinian uh, kind of missiles, which are unguided and quite uh, kind of on a, a quite short range and so on. And again, and uh, Zelensky also explicitly said that he wanted to make Ukraine like a new Israel, basically a kind of um, state which will be supported by the West for a very long time and would be, and would be basically uh, again for a very long time conflict between uh, like between Israel and uh, Arab states and Palestine. So he wanted to do the same basically for Ukraine to make uh, Ukraine a kind of um, Western bulwark against Russia, kind of uh, for a very long time. And so this is like his explicit policy. And he, when he says democracy again, uh, I think Israel. Is um, is again. I'm not expert in Israel, but uh, Israel you have multi-party system elections and so on. In case of Ukraine, uh, uh, Zelensky ban all opposition, um, major basically major all I think all major opposition parties, with the exception of um, of parties on the uh, far right, and, and with the exception of um, the Poroshenko party and parties which are more nationalist, nationalistic parties. And here again um, ban all the opposition. Television channels, including the Poroshenko television channel and so on, and left only one state basically run a television marathon, which only gives Ukrainian news, which are approved by the government of Zelensky. So, this is actually not a real kind of democracy. So, actually, Ukraine is not democratic in this regard. And as I mentioned, this is based on my research. So, there is no democracy in Ukraine. Ukraine is largely undemocratic, and Zelensky is not a democrat. He is basically trying to to uh, kind of uh, create his uh, democratic rule and, and to hold power in Ukraine, especially because um, of uh, forthcoming elections, which were supposed to be held in the next uh, March, uh, next presidential elections, and Zelensky just decided that this is not the time for elections. So he, basically he makes his own decision kind of whether to hold elections, to replace himself. So this is like a uh, who, uh, can, how can uh, anybody call this democracy? And there are like people, even some academics who say this is like a Ukrainian democracy and so on. And for me, this is like a Orwellian. This is quite unbelievable. 
because you have major human rights violations, you have opposition opposition parties, one, you have political prisoners, you have um, just state media basically control the television um, programs, and, so, and this is quite unbelievable. Now there are no even elections to be held, and this is considered to be democracy, and I think this is purely political kind of uh, misrepresentation, which is, I think, also affected uh, this uh, war in Ukraine to a large extent because of propaganda, because open propaganda. Yeah, uh, Ukraine as the new Israel, very ominous in more ways than one. Uh, I'm going to have some more observations on Palestine when we go into our uh, overtime segment for the patrons. But for now, um, let's just, uh, uh, I guess, talk about uh, the main thing that happened recently, uh, I guess, prior to the Gaza war, which is uh, what is now just kind of like universally seen as Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. And we could get into some of those specifics, but I, I also want to know, uh, like specifically about the counteroffensive, uh, I can't really get a, a great handle on whether or not it was something that had just a great deal of appetite for within Ukraine itself, or if it was something that was just kind of like pushed on Zelensky, whether it's just kind of like directly or indirectly, indirectly in the sense that, you know, he would have to sort of like really show something for the West, right? I get the feeling that if the counteroffensive really went uh, very well, probably uh, America would be more willing to, you know, fund uh, them more and more. The fact that it failed, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, all right, time to start negotiating peace. So was this something that, uh, the app that Ukraine had a lot of appetite for, or was it something that was pushed on Zelensky, or, or is it some sort of like in between situation? I think this was a decision uh, was by Zelensky and by the West, and I think it's very important to, to kind of as a political scientist and also as a Ukrainian kind of to say that Zelensky is not a Ukrainian, so he's become associated with Ukraine and he speaks on behalf of Ukraine and all Ukrainians, but obviously this is. He's just uh, one politician who, who is currently again uh, president of Ukraine, but he's uh, he's uh, again he's not able to speak on behalf of all Ukrainians or or even to say what again uh, kind of that he's basically Ukraine alone, and and this is I think very important to distinguish because this is specifically used to kind of justify this policy because if Zelensky said that he supported this counteroffensive, so this means or any other policy of war, so this means Ukraine supporting this, but this is again in any country. This is like basically saying that Biden is the United States or Trump is the, is the United States and anybody who says otherwise are kind of anti-American or something like this. So this would be obviously not kind of accepted or uh, kind of, but in case of UK, this is often deliberately conflated. And I think the decision to launch this uh, failed counteroffensive counter was a decision by Zelensky and also by the West because Zelensky wanted to, his, uh, to have again an, another PR public relations and you know, kind of um, display to show again uh, to the West and to show to Ukrainians that uh, Russia uh, again can be defeated and he I think he actually believes this that he would be able to kind of defeat Russia because of flawed interpretation of what happened before and the same I think Western countries also and also he wanted to show to the West that um, that Western uh, provision of military support, weapons to Ukraine, and funding to Ukraine is justified because he's able to kind of defeat Russia on this small territory, not entirely basically defeat Russia, but kind of, but um, again, to inflict uh, 
kind of severe damage on Russia and take some territory and move closer to Crimea. And he even predicted uh, that uh, you can would be able to take back uh, Crimea and Donbass, which is, I think was uh, totally uh, kind of um, absurd even to, to think about because I, I mentioned in all my interviews before this uh, counteroffensive started and in my comments on social media, that there is basically uh, zero probability that Ukraine would be able to take back Crimea and Donbass from uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, this is, I think, what happened now. But um, kind of, so motivation by Zelensky were purely political. He wanted to kind of show to Ukrainians and, and to the West that, again, that he could, can continue kind of uh, take back territory, which was uh, occupied by, by Russia during this war, even uh, take back Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014, and also even the territory of Donbass, which was, um, again, uh, became controlled by separatists in 2014 with Russian support. But um, Western countries also specifically prompted Zelensky to launch this counteroffensive, even so they knew in advance that, again, Ukraine would not be able to defeat Russia. This was, I think, very obvious. Even Pentagon leaks disclosed this, that Western intelligence estimated that Ukraine would not be able to kind of uh, to take back even uh, kind of this uh, um, area which uh, which uh, uh, which connects uh, Donbass with, um, uh, with uh, Crimea. Um, land bridge between Donbass and Crimea, and this was a main goal of this counteroffensive, and they predicted this would be very difficult to do this, and I think uh, for this reason, it was very obvious that Western countries also had intensive, in, kind of intention, Western governments had intention to support this counteroffensive, also to show to the public that uh, support for Ukraine is beneficial, that Russia is basically weakened, uh, there is, again, uh, uh, kind of uh, is uh, taken back by Ukrainian uh, Process and also to kind of justify a policy of um, proxy war in Ukraine because this is again basically Western um, countries use Ukraine as a proxy against Russia and this is was main uh, reason for such um, for such a policy uh, of the Western they, of, the, of Western countries they, or Western governments they do not uh, support actually uh, they do not care much about Ukrainians they do not care about Ukraine per se. But they uh, only consist. They only consider Ukraine as an important tool against Russia. So this is why they kind of gave all this money, all the support is basically to weaken Russia, to use Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. And uh, and the head of the Pentagon actually was quite explicit about this policy. He said the goal of the United States is to weaken Russia, and that's why they supported this policy. Even so, again, it was obvious that this. Um, again, would be very difficult to achieve, as I mentioned, the chances of this were close to zero. And the reason for this is because how previous uh, events in this war in Ukraine were misrepresented deliberately by the media, by politicians in the West and in Ukraine, and including by Zelensky. So they specifically kind of presented um, kind of um, kind of battles or kind of or, uh, or warfare near Kyiv uh, when Russia, uh, as a defeat of Russia, near Kyiv and then near Kharkiv and then near Kherson. So this was kind of presented as basically as defeats, military defeats by Russia uh, against uh, Ukrainian forces. And this is kind of what I think was major reason why a lot of people in the West believe that actually Russia is very weak and, and it would be easily defeated during the current counteroffensive. 
which is another place, but not a place, and it was quite obvious for me because I research this, um, this events daily. I watch hundreds of videos on the ground, looking into all everything in terms of military kind of events taking place, all the major battles and all major kind of. Um, Changes in front line and so on daily, and looking into different sources, different telegram channels from different perspectives, and it was very obvious that uh, there were no major battles, uh, again significant battles or significant military defeat by Russia near Kiev or near Kharkiv. Yeah, I, I will say that even as a layperson speaking to the idea of how much of this was fact, how much of this was propaganda in terms of uh, cheering on the war or, or cheering on uh, the idea of Russian weakness. Uh, even as a layperson, I remember uh, starting in like early summer of last year, just by the the sheer volume of things that were coming out of, you know, both like mainstream publications as well as journals. Uh, you had like one study, I forget where this was, maybe this was actually last fall, where they were predicting within a year uh, the total collapse of Russia due to sanctions. Uh, it just kind of struck me as, all right, this is, it's it's too much too soon uh, many of these like early uh, predictions are not really panning out in terms of like really, really like truly damaging sanctions. And you would see, you know, you would see uh, articles like, okay, it's a little, you know, Russia is a little bit more resilient than we thought in terms of these sanctions. But this this new tranche of uh, uh, sanctions that we're about to put on now, this is really going to cause a lot of pain. And it never really seemed to materialize. So I would say like starting from from last summer, uh, we had like plenty of reason to be uh, skeptical, and that's not to say that we even had you know plenty of reason to be skeptical beforehand. And uh, figures like John Mearsheimer, for for instance, uh, they always contended from the start that this would be more or less uh, you know World War One style uh, artillery trench warfare, and th there, you know there's no way that Ukraine could win that simply you know uh, based on uh, you know rates of attrition. Uh, 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 manpower uh, based on what the West can and cannot produce and or send versus what Russia is able to manufacture, that sort of thing. So there were always reasons, right, to be skeptical. But um, uh, I think fairly quickly they start to pile on. And uh, like, would you characterize the the fighting that Zelensky has chosen to do? Because there seems to be for a while now like conflicts between himself and and his generals where. He seems to want to like do battles that maybe have symbolic value, but don't necessarily have a whole lot of military value. And maybe this is just kind of like a function of, well, you know, Zelensky, uh, if his strength is kind of like charisma or being like a showman, uh, and the idea is Ukraine is facing this uphill battle. So uh, his main task is to just get as many Westerners on his side as possible. Uh, so what's his strategy based on that reasoning? Like, what uh, did it go for kind of like showy attempts at victories? Like, for instance, I mean, like the, the whole like uh, Bakhmut thing, right? Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like it's not uh, so necessary either to Russia or to Ukraine, but both Russia and Ukraine treated it as this kind of like huge symbolic thing where Russia sacrificed a lot of you know resources and people just to be able to uh, hold on uh, uh, and and you know Ukraine was trying to win it back. So like how would you characterize this kind of fighting? Yes, I think exactly. And if I also briefly comment about, uh, respond to your comment about sanctions and efficiency of sanctions, it was very obvious even before this war, the sanctions would not be effective in changing Russian policy or ending this uh, 
or preventing Russian invasion or ending this war after Russia invaded. And I mentioned this in a lot of media interviews in Canada, television interviews before this invasion, in radio interviews and in my comments. And after and after they were started, because um, kind of there is a very large volume of research by scholars, by political scientists who look into effect of sanctions. And there are many other cases of many countries which were in conflict in the West and were subject subject to subject subject to to very significant sanctions for a very long time. You just, uh, just look into examples of Cuba, uh, North Korea, um, Iraq, uh, during Saddam Hussein, Iran, um, and uh, Venezuela. So all the countries, again, uh, uh, did anybody, did any of these countries collapse? So it was very easy to defeat. And actually, North Korea became nuclear power. It has a lot of weapons, which now I think they provide even to Russia. Iran, the same. They were able to, again, uh, to survive and, and um, Again, and able also to provide weapons to Russia, and I think and Cuba also kind of able to uh, to withstand all this blockade for a very long time. So, in in the case of um, sanctions, it was I think uh, quite uh, kind of I think again for me this is quite unbelievable. Basically, that people would believe that sanctions can can uh, have such effect because of of, uh, of studies, academic studies, but also many other examples of other countries which are even uh, which are less much less developed than Russia and have much less resources are able to survive uh, even much more severe sanctions. So, so I think this was wishful kind of is a wishful uh, belief or thinking or it was actually again propaganda basically to justify such policy of um, doing something actually turn and kind of instead of um, Another option, which would be not possible for the West, is to intervene directly in this war, because this would mean a war between Russia, which is nuclear power, and the NATO countries, including the United States, which are also nuclear kind of powers, and which would mean, again, nuclear war and an end of, again, of basic civilization, or very significant damage to many countries with uh, significant casualties, which I think is not acceptable uh, from, again, uh, not a real scenario for the West. And for Russia, I think also um, kind of because of this. Uh, and I think uh, kind of uh, in terms of um, uh, policy of Zelensky, uh, yeah, this is quite clear that he motivated by uh, public relations, his own image and his popularity in his, uh, in his uh, policy. In this conflict, as I mentioned, again, <clears throat> he's uh, tries to be in limelight, he tries to win support and, and show that uh, he always winning and so on, and which explains a lot of his decisions, which had very negative consequences on the uh, kind of in terms of for Ukraine and future of Ukraine, and which led to uh, military disasters, like in case of Bakhmut. Um, kind of Bakhmut, uh, defense of Bakhmut for a very long time was a specific personal decision by Zelensky. He specifically mentions this in his interviews that he gave order to kind of for Ukrainian forces not to withdraw from Bakhmut, even there was a real danger of kind of of settlement and settlement of Bakhmut, and a lot of um, there was a very significant number of Ukrainian casualties during this battle, and Russia also lost a lot of um, people, uh, kind of soldiers in this um, in this battle offensive, which was also motivated, I think, had political motivation, but Russia was kind of relied on um, and on their Wagner company to 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 take uh, kind of control of a battle over Bakhmut and uh, Wagner company mercenary company led by Prigozhin they rely on, uh, on uh, Russian prisoners basically people who were recruited from prisons were sent to the battle and uh, in exchange for their sentence being uh, kind of reduced or lifted uh, so they would get amnesty for this so a lot of casualties I think 
uh, very significant number of casualties, Russian casualties in Bakhmut, where this uh, were actually prison, Russian prisoners who were sent to or joined a kind of uh, Wagner company specifically, kind of uh, in exchange for uh, in exchange for kind of um, promise to, of amnesty. And I think this is kind of a very different different for Ukraine because Ukrainian forces were were uh, who who were lost in Bakhmut were m much more kind of um, Elite forces, they were uh, regular military forces, uh, and uh, they uh, kind of, and their loss is much more significant in terms of the effect on on Ukraine and Ukrainian military because a lot of most experienced uh, members of Ukrainian military were killed in the Bakhmut kind of defense, which um, again was even Western countries told Zelensky not to continue this defense, but he decided to do this for political reasons, as he did the same with um, uh, uh, kind of this uh, battle for Mariupol when he gave order uh, for Mariupol again for even for Azov and kind of neonatalate Azov battalion uh, which is regiment and other Ukrainian forces not to uh, withdraw from uh, from Mariupol and to continue fighting against Russian forces until their surrender and, and imprisonment by, by Russia but and later Zelensky also gave similar order uh, to continue fighting for uh, Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, which is again, uh, even so, there was a real danger of surrender of uh, by Russian encirclement of these uh, cities in Donbass as well. And uh, so this is and the latest, I think, uh, kind of manifestation of this policy was um, by Zelensky was uh, his uh, decision to kind of uh, to <clears throat> have a, to launch a military operation over Dnipro River. In the Kherson area, try to, uh, to kind of move and advance to Crimea from Kherson area, kind of uh, and, uh, over Dnipro River, which is again uh, by using uh, amphibious, uh, basically uh, offensive, which is, I, I think, again, uh, is not successful. It, uh, Ukrainian forces were able to establish small platform in one or two villages near this river, but it would be very difficult to. to to advance to Crimea from this area because uh, kind of Dnipro River, even after uh, this Kahovka Dam was was blown up, is still a significant uh, kind of uh, river. It's a very large river uh, which um, um, prevents Ukrainian forces from being able to supply and to transfer their weapons and military personnel to kind of um, across this river for uh, major uh, counteroffensive in this area. But I think this is for Zelensky. It was major. Public relations kind of motivation to do this to show that he would be able to kind of again defeat Russia by surprise and so on, and this is one of the reasons of the tension between military and and uh, military Ukrainian military commanders and Zelensky because uh, they resist his or try to uh, kind of um, try to give other suggestions, other policies, and or to try to resist his policies, which lead to very significant casualties, like in case of Bakhmut, in case of this Dnipro uh, uh, River counteroffensive, and also in case of uh, Severodonetsk and, and other um, similar uh, cases. And I think even uh, Times uh, Times Magazine recently uh, uh, had article about Zelensky by by. Uh, uh, by Simon Schuster, uh, uh, which, uh, which received a lot of media attention in Ukraine, coverage in Ukraine, because he uh, he mentioned that uh, Zelensky gave order uh, to Ukrainian military to take um, uh, to kind of uh, to launch counteroffensive and take back 
uh, Hodivka city, which is near Donetsk, and, and the military refused to such order. They said there are no sufficient resources, no people to, to for such a counteroffensive in this area, which is heavily defended by Russian forces, which is, I think, uh, quite uh, consistent with statement by Zelensky, who said during his recent visit to the United States that he that Ukraine would be able to take back two cities, uh, two cities from Russia uh, in a short time. And I think Rolivka was one city, and probably Bakhmut was another city because also he he ordered again to to Ukrainian by Ukrainian forces to try to take back Bakhmut, and this also counteroffensive there also failed. And even so, now Bakhmut is basically totally destroyed. There is no military value in this, but it's big political value for Zelensky trying to show again to the public, to Ukrainians, and and to the media that he is still like a Churchill. He's still kind of uh, very successful and so on in in defeating Russia. But this is, I think, was obvious for a very long time that he's not in such category. He's just motivated by public relations, and there's very significant um, consequences of such policies which um, have on Ukraine and Ukrainians, because a lot of people are getting killed, and Ukraine future now is in uh, quite pessimistic and in doubt because of um, kind of of the decision by Zelensky basically to, to kind of engage in such policies and uh, kind of trying to kind of um, basically to uh, double down on the policies even after the failure of these policies and such strategy, which he's not a military expert, but he tries to kind of um, command over military uh, commanders. And now the reports that he uh, already uh, plans to replace is Zaluzhny or to other top commanders in Ukrainian military. Uh, and some of them might be even uh, uh, charged with a uh, variety of crimes, uh, or kind of accused of a variety of crimes and investigated and put in prison. And I think this is another kind of uh, policy of Zelensky to try to imprison anybody who would go against him or trying to show that he's still in command and still kind of is able to kind of, to kind of control situation in Ukraine and in this war. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see if the West would actually go along with some of these, like, more obviously political uh, prosecutions, because yeah, the West seems to, like, want to uh, maintain a little bit of uh, plausible deniability. But specifically on, on the rift between um, Valerie Zeluzhny and Zelensky, uh, so, like, Zeluzhny is most recently in the news because he gave this big interview where uh, he was just, like, more or less saying, look, uh, you know, this war is a stalemate. The only way that we could have a serious breakthrough is if we have a serious technological breakthrough, which might never come. And soon after that interview, uh, there was uh, like, so was Illusioni's aide. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he got killed, but uh, he received some sort of a, a gift, right? Like a, a, a gift of like, it seemed like maybe toy grenades or whatever it was. It turned out to be real grenades and uh, the aide e either, correct me if I'm wrong, either got hurt or got killed. Was this like specifically meant for Zeluzhny? Like what what is the, you know, uh, a chatter about all this? Like what are the theories about what transpired and why? Is this just kind of like a means of taking out the guy that is, uh, you know, poo-pooing the war effort or was this like random or was there something else going on? I do not know what actually happened in this case because I have just public information. So I just read public reports about this quite unusual case and I think a very suspicious case, but it's very difficult to know actually what happened without knowing the evidence and all the kind of 
all the background to this story, but um, I think it was quite extraordinary in any case that um, that um, uh, one of senior aides to Zaluzhny would give a gift of military grenades made in Germany to another aide of Zaluzhny as a birthday present, which is now official story, and, and uh, official investigation said that um, again almost immediately that this um, kind of uh, this gift was um, kind of immunity weapons. This was uh, kind of uh, that uh, Zaluzhny aide who gave this gift. Uh, he specifically mentioned that they, this were like um, uh, real grenades. This was real uh, kind of uh, ammunition uh, which can blow up and so on. But uh, they said that um, uh, another aide of Zaluzhny who received this uh, this gift uh, as a birthday present, he believed that they were just um, uh, kind of what this uh, like um, as a, like glasses for for wine for drinking whiskey, which he also received as a present. So he just opened this and tried to uh, pull the plug when uh, his uh, child was playing with them, which is I think quite unbelievable because if if uh, he would he gave this uh, grenade, live grenade to, to his child to play, and I think and afterwards there was explosion and and he and this aide Chuzlansky was um, uh, Chuzaluzny was. Um, killed and his uh, child uh, was badly injured during this kind of quite extraordinary event. So I'm not sure. Again, this is, looks kind of it might be accident, um, but again, it will be very strange to see that uh, military kind of uh, one of the most senior military officials in Ukraine in terms of uh, kind of being close to Zaluzhny at, at the time when there is an open conflict between Zaluzhny and Zelensky, he would just accept um, kind of such present and another person would give such present and and um, and they would not and the person who received such present would not know that these are real military grenades would not be able to distinguish between again a real grenade and and and, uh, and uh, kind of and, and glass like in the form of grenade which is obviously a different weight and so on but I think um, I, I think maybe this was one of the reasons for this is because this these grenades were from Germany which had uh, some plastic uh, kind of um, kind of um, were used in, in terms of plastic, not uh, metal grenades, and this may be one reason for such confusion. Uh, and especially if there was a birthday, so he might uh, be drunk. So this is maybe a, such explanation. And another explanation would be that this was assassination, specifically uh, trying to kind of kill two, uh, trying to remove two aids of Zaluzhny at the same time. And again, um, there is uh, no evidence for, for this, but I think it will be a very strange coincidence like taking place at the very time when this open rift between Zaluzhny and, um, and Zelensky. So I think it will be very difficult to know uh, now what which version of this is uh, kind of uh, is uh, real, but I think um, uh, if, if you would receive some more information about this, it might be then possible to make um, kind of more conclusion, conclusive evidence. I personally do not know. I'm not certain what actually happened. I think it's, uh, but it's very strange story which might have implications because of its political effect and a lot of oppositions, like from even in Ukraine, uh, to Zelensky started using this story basically immediately saying this was assassination linked to, to Zelensky, trying to basically go after Zaluzhny and his uh, aides. One funny detail about all this that I'm not sure if you noticed, but in some of the translations of these stories uh, from Russian, uh, it gets translated as 
toy uh, pomegranates or like gift pomegranates because there's a lot of it's the the word the Russian word for pomegranate and grenade is actually very similar. So when they translated back, I guess automatically uh, some of these articles say that he received pomegranates that exploded, um, which might be pretty confusing to readers, but that's why. Uh, so uh, I guess we could soon move to the Maidan uh, massacre updates. But before we do that, do you have uh, anything that you want to say about just kind of the status of the Ukraine war going forward? Are we now going to be in a situation where, you know, the West is just going to be emphatic about you have to uh, sue for peace? And if so, like, what are these peace deal peace deals like what might they look like is there actually willingness in the part of putin to negotiate now there seems to have been willingness early on in the war uh but at this point i mean it's it's very feasible i think that um you know like it it, it it's kind of like crazy to say but when it comes to uh all the conflicts that we could list whether it's like the gaza conflict or whatever you know the war in iraq the actual like civilian death toll of uh the war in ukraine seems to be pretty low and i don't think it's like you know it, it's it's not uh like putin is not above for instance trying to do something that would humiliate biden in 2024 right uh for the sake of the elections by you know really upping the ante in that way and killing more civilians and it seems like much of um you know much of the global south might sort of stand behind Putin in these kinds of actions simply because he gave himself intentionally it seems like a lot of wiggle room in terms of like he could point to like well you know the civilian death toll is actually much lower and we're taking equal casualties you know in terms of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers so um like what what, what do you think is going to happen going forward and and what are these peace deals what might they look like in terms of uh, civilian casualties in Ukraine, um, the latest UN report, which was published on I think October seven, was last uh, October eight, had um, there were casualties, uh, confirmed casualties uh, on Ukrainian uh, government-controlled territory of about seven thousand civilians, and six thousand civilians were killed on Russian-controlled territory. Mm -hmm. so kind of. Um, more civilians killed in uh, on the Ukrainian territory, but now the number of civilians killed uh, in each month declined to about um, 140 or about, about 150 confirmed casualties. And, uh, and I think very interesting. Again, this is still very significant, but there is nothing in comparison, for instance, even to war in Bosnia. In Bosnia, things mm -hmm. are a much bigger number of casualties are taking place over uh, during this war. So, and in, in case of, uh, I think, very interesting that uh, after the Gaza uh, conflict started, uh, there was no uh, update from the United Nations about civilian casualties in Ukraine. I think this is also very, very interesting. Yeah, for like a month, uh, for like a month, they stopped updating. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is quite unusual as well. And I think this also, I think this also has implications because kind of uh, this was presented uh, this war was presented basically as a kind of um, as plan to kind of put in uh, again uh, to to take over or attack Ukraine to destroy Ukrainian nations and so on uh, kind of uh, target civilians but again I think kind of uh, now uh, again, uh, kind of, it would be very difficult, uh, kind of, uh, to especially for other countries and for the media to justify this kind of uh, this kind of um, 
kind of continuation of this war by basically appealing for supporting Ukrainians and against uh, kind of a Russian uh, policy of trying to kind of uh, kill all Ukrainians or can or, or annihilate Ukrainian nations and so on, which was uh, propaganda at the start of, of this conflict. And a lot of like academics even uh, kind of, who are not experts like or some kind of, kind of in other areas like uh, Timothy Snyder, who is a historian, but was very active in co commenting about this, and, and even some other kind of academics who became uh, kind of um, just kind of like activists and, and uh, northern scholars, they also kind of perpetrated this um, this kind of uh, propaganda that there is basically genocide against Ukrainians taking place and, and so on, and this policy of, of Putin is kind of is mass annihilation, like, like almost like Hitler, Nazi Germany, and so on, and now I think it would be very difficult to justify this kind of uh, policy, but again, uh, the uh, number of military casualties are much more significant in Ukraine, and this is, uh, I think, uh, now supported by a variety of data, even so, uh, kind of, uh, still for Ukraine and Ukrainians, this is a very significant uh, conflict, and most casualties are kind of a result of Russian shelling, kind of, kind of uh, using, uh, again, uh, like shells, and, uh, artillery, shelling missiles, and so on, which are, I think, uh, uh, kind of, um, which are, uh, uh, kind of impact also areas with civilians like in cities or kind of civilian population in areas during the battles, uh, kind of in villages and towns like Bakhmut and so on. But um, this is, I think, nothing comparable with with war in Bosnia or even with Gaza in terms of magnitude of the casualties, civilian casualties, or even uh, even much more nothing compatible with World War II. I think this is like a scholar. I think very important to kind of to note not this because this was used to misrepresent and to justify basically a, a proxy war in Ukraine. Basically, to saying that there is no choice for Ukraine is basically this is like a war for survival, like World War II, and because Russia would kill all the Ukrainians or just capture all Ukraine and so on and annihilate Ukrainian nation. And this is actually I don't think this was a real outcome, and um, kind of, and uh, I think I mentioned the goal of Russia was trying to kind of um, to make a deal, to force Ukraine uh, to make a deal and to declare neutrality of Ukraine, to kind of uh, to recognize um, annexation of Crimea and Donbass by Russia, and in the end, uh, Russia or to have a regime change in Ukraine into Russian government on the remaining uh, part of Ukraine, and I think. Kind of, uh, Russia uh, had uh, kind of and Ukraine negotiated such deal in the uh, uh, spring of 2022, and it was very close to being completed. But uh, Western countries basically told Zelensky not to uh, kind of implement such a deal or to sign such a deal. This was revealed by ex-Israeli Prime Minister, by ex-leader of Germany, and uh, by officials close to Zelensky, and even. Uh, to again other sources like Turkish foreign minister and so on. So this was basically United States decision and decision of other like, countries of NATO, like in the kingdom, not to have a peace deal and to continue proxy war. And I think this is very important because uh, this would mean that decision to kind of and policy either to continue this way in Ukraine or to make a peace deal with Russia and accept uh, much uh, worse conditions for Ukraine as a, result, as a result of such peace deal now would be would be decided by the West, by the United States. It's not like they talk about, so this is like Ukrainian decision, the sovereignty and so on, or what they call this, I'm not forgot, it's like what the name they, they call it, like autonomy or kind of 
that this is basically only a decision of UK and UK government, but in practice, this is not how this is, uh, works. And this is uh, actually would be decision by US government, by Biden administration, either to continue this war, trying to achieve stalemate, basically, which will be the only possibility, but I think it's not very realistic in the long term. But still, um, kind of, they might achieve uh, this policy if they want to weaken Russia. So the longer war continues in Ukraine, even without any possibility of Ukrainian victory over Russia, this still will be beneficial to the West and to Biden administration, especially before elections, to justify this. So I think this is one possible strategy by by Biden and by by the West in general, because Western countries like Germany, United United Kingdom, and even France, they just follow. Uh, policy of the United States in, uh, concerning war in Ukraine. Another possibility is for negotiations, basically, and there are some reports that um, that Western officials starting, started already uh, suggesting uh, that Zelensky would resume negotiations with Russia, but I think uh, now any negotiations, even if they will be resumed by Zelensky, which is, I think would be very difficult for him, because of his kind of premise to defeat Russia, now basically he would have to kind of resort to negotiations and immediately he would face opposition from the far right in Ukraine, from hardline nationalists in Ukraine, because he promised opposite and any negotiations with Russia basically would mean recognition that his policy failed already. But then another issue would be what kind of peace deal would be could be achieved, and any peace deal now which can be signed would would mean uh, conditions which will be much more kind of uh, difficult to accept or even kind of much more uh, negative to Ukraine in, in terms of future and impact compared to any peace deal which could have been reached in spring of 2022. Because now now Russia, I think if 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 they would accept peace deal, they would demand not only neutrality of Ukraine, demilitarization of Ukraine, and making even uh, like Russian second language, which is maybe their policy, but also they would demand recognition of annexation, not only of Crimea and Donbass, but also the regions which were annexed already by Russia, like uh, part of um, Kherson and the Prisia region, and they might have other territory, they might demand other territory, like Odessa region and Kharkiv region, uh, as, a as, as a part of a peace deal. So this is, I think, could be very negative consequences to Ukraine if such peace deal would be signed. So I think the choice now either to continue this war and trying to weaken Russia by the, uh, this will be Western policy, and Zelensky might accept this again because uh, alternative is would be to start negotiations and uh, to uh, sign a peace deal, which would be again very negative to Ukraine. So again. Uh, I think uh, the, uh, uh, but I think the, in terms of Ukrainians in future, if you can, any peace deal would be still beneficial because continuation of the war would just delay in, a, in a basically inevitable. So even the war would continue, the longer it would continue, the uh, much less favorable outcome for Ukraine would be in the in the when the war would end. Uh, would end, and this would mean again many people killed, uh, very significant military casualties. Because now, uh, kind of military casualties are very significant. I read uh, each day obituaries in my native Volin region uh, newspapers. Now, several uh, several soldiers are killed from this region each day, which can be uh, kind of estimated on entire Ukraine. It will be about uh, more than three thousand military casualties each month at least. So this means again very heavy just killed of Ukrainian forces, so, and compared, again, 
much lower civilian casualties, but I think this is very significant impact. And if war continue, it will be very difficult to kind of uh, um, for Ukraine to to end this war on any favorable terms, and it will be much worse outcome even uh, compared to what would be possible now. So I think now in Ukraine, I'm quite pessimistic about future of Ukraine. Even so, the kind of Zelensky would still try to present that everything is is fine. There is no stalemate. There is a still possibility of victory, but I think the outcome is already quite certain that uh, there is a kind of a big problem for Ukraine in terms of this war. And uh, this is just a time, just how soon it will be recognized by the West and by Zelensky. And I mean, just to be fair, um, maybe I'm just too suspicious of a person here. But uh, speaking of the the March uh, April uh, negotiations of uh, 2022 last year, uh, just like some of the figures involved, um, uh, the, so the German uh, ex prime minister Gerard Schroeder. I mean, I think there's reasons to be suspicious of anything that he says in terms of negotiations. Uh, simply his own like Russia related uh, scandals in the past. Uh, Naftali Bennett. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I consider him like very credible just given his his behavior over the past the year year and a half but especially over the last month or so uh but this at the same time it also would be interesting if like you know as time passes if if putin uh, completes this kind of realignment towards uh palestine it would be interesting to see if uh suddenly bennett has a, a different recollection uh from how uh march april 2022 played out um but there's also you know obviously there's like turkish officials that corroborate the idea that there yes there was a, a peace deal on the table and Zelensky and Putin were both willing to do so. And then, you know, there was this kind of like Western pressure to um, not go through with it. Uh, but it will be interesting to see basically what would happen um, going forward. And I just wanted to uh, get those details there because as I was researching the specifics of the negotiations, you know, I just had like the sinking feeling like, you know, there's not really people that I would trust all that much. But again, you know, there are multiple officials and um, that, that obviously carries weight, right? They were the ones doing the negotiations they were allowed in so you have to lend some credibility to these words but maybe we can move specifically to uh, yeah, if the, i can just briefly yeah. add to this uh, because original publication about this peace deal and negotiations that were ended and specifically that they were ended by uh, um, a British prime minister uh, boris johnson was in uk in ukrainian media in ukrainian powder which is main uh, like ukrainian newspaper and, and this uh, publication was based on um, sources from uh, officials close to Zelensky. So this basically, Ukrainian government officials gave such information and published this information first. And I, I published this, this uh, article on Twitter. I reported this article on Twitter, which was originally published in Ukrainian language. And it became immediately, again, a, a kind of a viral a tweet. And, and this is uh, was first mentioning of this peace deal, kind of um, which was close to uh, Success, she been successful, and there were, but there were many other reports in Western media and other sources before this kind of um, Ukrainian publications that these negotiations were um, were very close to success, and uh, that, that uh, they included such provisions as entirety of Ukraine. So this is not only kind of um, kind of uh, information from uh, from these two leaders, like politicians, but but also from Ukrainian sources and uh, Zelensky and from other Western media before this. So it, it I think now this is quite well documented. That there was such a clear possibility of such peace deal, and the Western mm -hmm. countries basically blocked this. And this was a decision by Biden administration and um, and also by British Prime Minister to continue a proxy war in Ukraine instead of um, having a peace deal uh, for Ukraine. 
Yeah, I actually forgot the the uh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, angle, but same thing applies to my Don massacre, where I, I was reading more uh, in the last few days, and um, it seems like every single interview that I came across, uh, or more kind of documentation as to what transpired uh, February twentieth, um, twenty fourteen, you know, there's there's so many layers to it, and I just want to frame this first of all as just seeing some of the kind of chatter around your specific claims online. Uh, I think we should like stress from the get-go that you never claimed, uh, for example, that there was no involvement of, uh, you know, Unikovich, uh, p- like police forces um, in the shooting, right? In fact, like you you left open the possibility that uh, they were eventually involved, if they were like shot upon first, um, or maybe there was some other kind of escalation. So you never had a claim from the beginning that absolutely you know we cannot uh take seriously any claims that uh, there was any sort of like police shooting or you know police related uh either uh, murders or killings or however you want you want to frame uh, a given uh, situation there so you know just to get at, that out of the way but yes, this is correct yeah so i do not exclude such possibility in mm-hmm. some cases that the that back of police shot uh, protesters either in crossfire or as, as a kind of uh, just uh, as a result of ricochet or some other uh, such a such a way so um can so, you actually just give us like this um maybe like a timeline of uh either uh the main trial that transpired or even maybe some of the kind of it seems like there was kind of like secondary trials or at least investigations how exactly did like all of those transpire why did it take so long uh, it seems like there is like some evidence at least of uh a cover-up in the sense of like there was like evidence that was destroyed, right? There was um, uh, tons of like ballistic information and uh, forensic analysis that never made it into the trial for whatever reason. Uh, but there were also just tons of uh, witness cor- corroboration. Uh, I mean, lots of people, we're not talking about one or two, we're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens. And in fact, one thing that kind of shocked me going through some of your videos is the number of witnesses, there were like, you know, they were like Maidan protesters, right? They were protesting against uh, Yanukovych and how many of them just like in all you know like we're talking about belgian tv programs we're talking about russian you know language ukrainian how many of them were just kind of saying that yeah there, there were snipers specifically in that building that building you know this was my don controlled that was my don controlled and um you know it hit you know people around me like it, it was it was actually a very common refrain and also it seems like just you know we wouldn't know about this like outside of ukraine i guess but uh you know, you researching this, you you would have more awareness. It seems as if for a long time, and even maybe even to this day, there was a lot of controversy specifically about who was responsible for, you know, if not primarily, then at least like a big chunk of the Maidan killings, right? It was not it was not dismissed out of hand, for instance, the idea that some of the like right wing uh, protesters that eventually, you know, formed the kind of Maidan muscle. That's why they became politically popular. Even if they couldn't win elections, they have a lot of outsized influence in Ukraine now simply because they're considered like, well, we provided the muscle for the Maidan revolution, which is what got us to this point now. So you have to respect us. And it, it seemed like it wasn't very controversial uh, to say that, uh, you know what, they, they probably were involved in some way shooting a protest and trying to create these escalations so just as a i'll use that as a framing device and you you could sort of give um the the recent revelations with the conclusion of the trial well this actually uh, so this is uh, my uh, 
main uh, theory, which um, my uh, main finding of my academic studies, which now published uh, in the form of CPA reviewed articles, uh, journal articles, and in the form of book chapter by academic press, and now and, and now my book would be um, published by another major Western uh, academic press about Maidan massacre, uh, just entirely a book about this massacre. And so what I found uh, based on my research that there was involvement of uh, right and oligarchic elements of Maidan leadership and snipers in, in this massacre, and then absolute, at least absolute majority of Maidan protesters and the police, uh, they were massacred by snipers who were based in uh, in the Hotel Ukraina and other Maidan control locations. Uh, specifically to blame, uh, firstly to blame uh, police forces for this massacre, or government forces to blame, forces, uh, to, to blame them for this massacre and to overthrow Yanukovych. And uh, so, and this is, I think, very kind of, uh, this was regarded as conspiracy theory, dismissed as conspiracy theory, that this is uh, kind of by uh, persecution, Ukrainian persecution, they said there were no snipers located in any building, this was like totally uh, kind of false, uh, and uh, even the Maidan lawyers said the same, and um, even major media like Western media also claimed that this is like conspiracy theory, kind of they did not mention my study specifically for this reason because uh, they kind of um, but you can, and also major Ukrainian media and a lot of politicians, they basically denied that there were any snipers and they either were silent or they denied this or tried to whitewash any evidence which was publicly available, like videos even from BBC of Madan sniper shooting into BBC crew, which was a video which was available for a long time, but they tried to kind of whitewash this and, and, uh, and saying this is like that Madan forces do not control Hotel Ukraine and so on. And this was just basically just another conspiracy theory to say that the Maidan forces killed kind of any Maidan protesters. And so now, as a result of this very long trial which took place in Ukraine since 2015, they they considered this massacre only Maidan protesters. They did not look into massacre of, of the police. And they only examined um, massacre of uh, about half of wounded protesters because another half uh, kind of persecution said they, they were shot by somebody else. And so they basically nobody, and they still said, so basically you have almost uh, like, um, I think 77 uh, wounded protesters were shot by somebody else and nobody charged with them. So nobody even asked any questions. So this is just normal. <laughs> so, and and this is kind of was already basically official admission that there were some uh, some snipers who shot uh, kind of um, these protesters because even persecution would not charge anybody with uh, their wounding. And, um, and and this style was specifically delayed um, deliberately by um, by kind of uh, by kind of um, by Ukrainian government. Uh, and Poroshenko was one of the people that was implicated in the delays, yeah. Yeah, and Poroshenko as well, and, and even Zelensky, when, because Zelensky uh, specifically exchanged uh, five backup members who were tied for this um, for this massacre of Maidan protesters to Donbass separatists in 2019. And this uh, trial was almost uh, ready to issue decisions, so they were very close, just a few months before the decision uh, verdict. And then Zelensky gave order to to the judges, basically to to prosecutors, to exchange uh, all the battled policemen who were charged with the massacre to Donbass separatists. And after two of them returned on their own from from Donbass, uh, kind of uh, separatists controlled Donbass to face trial, so the trial would resume. So this, is, but it would took, took almost two years just a break because before the trial was resumed, and uh, they issued decision uh, just uh, last month. 
their verdict, which is, I think, was also quite un unprecedented because all the media reports in the West and in Ukraine about this verdict initially, they they removed any kind of reference to any snipers, any uh, any kind of um, medal snipers, which kind of now confirmed by this verdict, uh, the entire decision officially in Ukraine, and this is, was not accidental because I think this goes against all the narrative presented about this massacre as basically as mass murder of uh, of protesters by um, by the police or government snipers on Yanukovych orders. So this was official narrative. And now we have a trial decision, official trial decision, which states, and this is what exactly I found, it states categorical conclusion that there were snipers, that there were um, like persons with weapons in Hotel Ukraina, and they were, they were using these weapons and shooting these weapons. And they um, said this kind of, and they specifically said that also the Hotel Ukraina was controlled by um, Maidan activists during this massacre, which is another kind of, uh, kind of, they, uh, variety of uh, kind of all this um, kind of self-proclaimed experts and, and uh, kind of, and others like this Katie Young, uh, some journalist who publishes this um, bulwark and kind of, and so on. She, she claims this is that uh, Hotel Ukraina was not controlled by anybody and so on and now we have official decision based on on my own research which is uh, confirms my own research which states that hotel Ukina was controlled by maidan activists so this is now official uh, court decision and uh, and again but no, nobody reported this they still unreported with with i think with exception of a few small media outlets and uh, and this is i think very crucial because i am a lot in my studies that far right swoboda before the massacre, they uh, officially issued a statement uh, on their website, which, say, which said they, they took Hotel Ukina under their control and guard. And they guarded this hotel. According to my studies, there are like videos of them guarding entrance to this hotel during the massacre. You have some deputies there. So this is this is was open uh, kind of evidence that this uh, hotel was guarded and controlled by Maidan forces, specifically far right. So what a party, which and now you have confirmation from um, from Ukrainian official trial verdict that this was controlled by um, not by any government. There were no government uh, forces involved in this massacre. They also said there were no Russian snipers involved in this massacre, which was another conspiracy theory trying to talk. They might have been Russian snipers and so on. But now you have official trial decision saying there were no government forces in Hotel Ukraine. It was controlled not by government forces. It was controlled by uh, Maidan activists and that um, there were people with weapons uh, in this Hotel Ukraina, and that uh, they also stated uh, openly, they stated explicitly that uh, there were at least three protesters, Maidan activists, killed from the Hotel Ukraina. So this is an official court decision, and, say, and they said that three Maidan activists were killed from the Hotel Ukraina, at least, uh, because they named them specifically, and saying uh, there were others who, whose circumstances are not... Uh, Certain or, or that involvement of of uh, government forces and that could specifically is excluded from in the killing. So there, there could have been more confirmations that other protesters were killed according to trial to this verdict. And they specifically said that these protesters were shot deliberately. And uh, in uh, another case, uh, the trial decision also states quite explicitly that uh, BBC the television crew was shot from the Hotel Ukraina, 
direction, they said like side from Hotel Kino, which is which is uh, consistent with video when BBC crew was shot from the Hotel Kino and they specifically pointed to window on 11th floor of this hotel and said that there was a sniper who who, wear, uh, who who was wearing a Maidan style helmet, green helmet. And now decision from official court decision states specifically that this uh, this BBC television crew was shot at by a by uh, by, by from the hotel Ukraine, and this and this was evidence that this was actually documented. And, and uh, yeah, that that is a video from uh, March 2014. Actually, you could find yes. it right now on the BBC website. And yeah, the the journalist is actually he's speaking and saying we were shot at. I recognize um, this person here wearing these clothes, wearing this. Uh, I think it was yeah. a, a helmet or a hat that is yeah. specifically like my Don. Um, and yeah, he's directly like making that statement. And you you could watch that now. And I don't think that video had any sort of airplay back then. It's the first time I came across it. Uh, uh, earlier this week. Oh, yes. And see, this is also very important because now we have official title, Vatic, which I posted on my website, which I was going to post entire all these references to, to the snipers in Hotel Okina and my website. So this specifically states that this was evidence that they were like, uh, that they were, uh, they were shooting, targeted shooting by Maidan, uh, by Maidan shooters from the Hotel Okina, which was controlled by Maidan activists. Um, kind of uh, this title, Vatic, they stated that uh, police, um, Belgrade police was responsible for murder of 31 out of 49 protesters who were killed on, on February 20th, and that they were responsible for, um, for, and, uh, for, for, uh, deliberate attempted murder of uh, 44, um, protesters who were wounded out of 80, well, entire, all, all protesters. And they said that, uh, commander of Belgrade um, the commander was responsible for murder of four, uh, not murder, but manslaughter of four protesters at the start of this massacre when uh, these protesters were shot accidentally during, uh, as a result of indiscriminate fire by uh, shooting by Belgrade police. But I think this this uh, decision basically to convict three uh, um, members of Belgrade, including Belgrade commander, for the murder of these protesters is based on single piece of decision or a single piece of evidence which is a forensic a ballistic examination of bullets, which was conducted in 2019, um, again, at the last moment when uh, Poroshenko was still in power and um, before shortly before elections. And this uh, forensic examination of bullets link kind of bullets, which were extracted from bodies of killed protesters to bullets from, um, from, from uh, backward uh, police and, uh, and, and but um, not the police who who were charged with um, with a massacre of protesters, uh, but other other policemen who were kind of uh, who were not charged, who were not facing the trial, and uh, and so this is like uh, the, this one piece of uh, forensic evidence was used basically to blame all the backward uh, collectively, uh, all the backward members collectively for the massacre of of Maidan protesters, even of most Maidan protesters in, according to the decision. But this, uh, again, uh, kind of, this is, uh, and I mentioned this in my studies even before this Maidan massacre trial, that this uh, forensic examination is clearly fraud fraudulent or false, falsified because um, it reversed uh, um, about 40 other forensic examination of bullets without any explanation. So you have 40 other bullet examination of bullets, which were conducted by Ukrainian government experts, and they were totally changed by another uh, kind of uh, examination, which was conducted 
even by the same experts, uh, including the same experts, without any explanation why they did this. So again, so this is uh, quite extraordinary because original um, examination of bullets which are extracted from bodies of Madame Patestis who were killed during this massacre and other locations, they did not match any bullet uh, to back um, the weapons. And this um, examination was conducted by computer-based systems. So there was no involvement of, of people, of humans in this case. And I think it's very important because uh, kind of in Ukraine, corruption is very strong. And, and these experts who conducted the latest examination were kind of basically uh, part of government institute. So this is kind of, so you can basically buy any decision and especially, or you can order such decision from, from the top because kind of in UK corruption is even in justice system is very significant and um, and everybody and everybody knows this this is quite open evidence and this is why kind of um, this is just one example of this but another example why this is fraudulent decision is because video which I examined which I synchronized all the videos of Belkut police shooting and uh, when they were shooting and um, and when protesters were killed such videos are available and synchronize them. And they, they were also synchronized by another group, which was hired by the general office, but did this anonymously. And they paid them to do this, but without using their names and identity. And this, this synchronized videos were used by the by the judges and jury to convict kind of um, backward policemen for the massacre of Madame Patestis. And all the videos which are synchronized independently by me and by this group kind of which was connected actually to um, uh, oligarchic uh, modern politicians who actually were involved in this massacre. Uh, they uh, they uh, show that specific times when uh, Belkut police were shooting did not coincide with specific times when uh, specific protesters were killed. So with, with, I think with just few exceptions. And I think it's also very revealing that Madan uh, massacre trial verdict, which uh, they mention this in a kind of um, model from uh, Situ, New York architectural company, which was published and publicized by New York Times as clear evidence that Belkut was responsible for the massacre of Madame protesters because they're looking to see cases of uh, protesters who were killed. And now the trial specifically said that uh, this uh, evidence was uh, introduced by uh, Madame victims' lawyers. But uh, he said that, uh, that they wasted basically time by uh, introducing this evidence for, for a few a few days during the trial, and later they decided not to present this evidence. So this was not used as evidence because specifically Maidan lawyers, they decided not to use the evidence which for which they requested commission from this architecture company in New York State, in New York City, as a main evidence that Belkut was responsible for the massacre. But uh, they decided not to introduce this evidence because as I mentioned in my own studies and my publications, this was very clear even without any kind of basic knowledge that this was a falsified also a kind of model because they change locations of bullets, bullet holes in or bullet wounds in, in these protesters from in different, uh, they move them into different locations specifically to match um, positions of Belkut. And, uh, and so this was very obvious that this was falsified. And for this reason, they did not kind of use um, uh, this situ model of, um, of reconstruction Kind of, which was publicized by New York Times and a lot of other media, basically as clear evidence that they were responsible, that Madame protesters were uh, killed by uh, Belkut police, and now 
Madame Lois, who commissioned this, specifically kind of refused to even to introduce this as evidence, to kind of use this as evidence during the trial, even so this was purpose of this of this um, this kind of model, which was paid actually by Soros Foundation, and they paid close to one hundred thousand. Uh, dollars, US dollars for this uh, for this model, and so uh, this is quite unbelievable. And also, I think also very revealing that a trial decision stated that um, that um, persecution refused to uh, refused to or, can, or do not conduct ballistic uh, examinations on site by ballistic experts to determine uh, locations of shooters on site of the massacre. To, so basically, to have a reconstruction to determine ballistic trajectories by ballistic experts, and they said this was a very primitive kind of, a, kind of this was a very basic um, task, kind of very, uh, very kind of straightforward task to do for persecution. And trial and Madame Muscatel ordered them to do this, but persecution basically did not conduct this for for more than two years, and they refused basically to do this, claiming a variety of. Uh, like for, uh, for claims which are quite extraordinary, they said that um, they could not use students because students were busy going to university, studying university, and uh, having them summer vacations and so on. So they could not conduct this. Um, this uh, they could not use ballistic experts to determine reconstruction from which location protesters were shot. At. And I think this is very clear that this was not just accident because you cannot. You can just claim. You can, it's very easy. To claim something without, uh, if you just write something, and because most people would not look into detail, would not know the location and all the kind of information to much to kind of connect this, all the information which I did in my studies, kind of collected all such information. But um, uh, if you try to kind of to show on site. Uh, location of the shooters, it would not be possible to do this because it would become immediately clear that uh, this bullet matches, which were kind of used as main evidence in forensic examination, uh, the Berkeley police uh, massacred this model protesters actually based on uh, on false information because matches this would not match location of Berkeley, but would clearly match location of snipers because bullet wounds in all cases of the killed protesters actually from a very steep direction, not from the ground. Uh, on which Berkut was located and not from the front, but uh, bullet locations are from the side direction and from uh, top to bottom direction and also from uh, back direction. So protesters were shot in the back and, and this is, and there are now recognition by uh, official verdicts that protesters were killed in the back by shots who, who were specifically aimed to kill them from the Hotel Ukraina. Uh, again, which was controlled by Maidan activists, but there's no investigation, nothing uh, conducted. And I think the reason why um, uh, persecution did not conduct this uh, ballistic experiments by uh, kind of ballistic reconstruction by ballistic experiments by ballistic experts is uh, even so there was a decision by uh, judges by the jury to conduct such uh, kind of examinations was because uh, the first such examinations were, which were conducted. By by experts determined that uh, that protesters were shot from Hotel Ukraina and other Madan control locations, and for this reason, obviously they they could not continue doing this, and that's why they uh, kind of uh, they uh, refused to uh, implement this court decision and did not conduct even the basic kind of uh, basic task using ballistic experts to determine bullet trajectory that killed Madan protesters. And I think this is not accidental. This is like dogs that did not bark in, in Conan Doyle um, novels, because it's very clear that this is kind of like in case videos, which again are used to, uh, 
uh, general criminal. Mr. Pazan, this is because police were shooting, but the police were shooting not into protesters, they were shooting uh, again, and the court and the decision, decision recognizes that they were shooting in the ground first, uh, and uh, they were shooting also in Hotel Ukraine, because this is, again, not accidental, because now trial decision recognizes that there were snipers located in this hotel Lukino, and they were shooting modern protesters from this location. So this is, I think, quite extraordinary to have all this information now. And again, there is a total media blackout, and there are no investigations, no calls from uh, even persecution of people who committed mass murder, basically in Ukraine, and there are no, basically nobody is interested in this um, to determine who was responsible, actually who shot their own protesters from the Hotel Ukraine, which was controlled by Maidan activists and uh, this kind of, um, and uh, people who claim this was conspiracy theory and, and deny this and attack me and try to smear me for my research, academic research now is a silent, a totally silent, or they continue to claim that the court decision did not have any kind of uh, refuted all this evidence that um, there were snipers in Hotel Lukino and so on, they shot Maidan protesters, or that Hotel Lukino was controlled by Maidan activists, even so this is clear opposite. Everything is written, and the text is available, and I publish this, and I'm going to publish this um, in my academic uh, venues. I'm going to include this uh, kind of verdict in my uh, in my uh, book, in my popular publications, and uh, again, and uh, I publish this um, Accept uh, kind of this evidence also on social media, on Twitter, and on my Facebook account. So I actually do have uh, some questions about, uh, I guess, like some of the more common objections to your Maidan research, as well as uh, some questions. I'm not sure if you ever heard this name, Ivan Bubinchik. You probably have. Um, he was one of the uh, Maidan protesters that uh, did, in fact, and did admit to uh, killing uh, at least one police officers by shooting him uh, in the back of the head. Um, and there's like a, this like weird Ukrainian law that uh, prevent his uh, prosecution due to the fact that Maidan related incidents were uh, specifically not prosecuted because of this law. And we could get into that maybe for, for the patrons afterwards. But let's just uh, for right now, uh, end with your, uh, maybe you could introduce the book that you're working on. I recently uh, donated uh, some money to the crowd uh, funding effort that you're doing for a book on kind of like the roots of the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, I'm guessing uh, you would start like primarily with the 90s and move onwards, which is uh, of interest to me simply because if you look at a lot of the documentation about Russia from the 90s up until I would say maybe 2008 when Western perspectives started to shift, you get a lot of interesting stuff um, uh, about Russia that now would be kind of ignored or downplayed in different ways. So maybe you could just uh, uh, briefly uh, talk about the book that you're working on now. So this is so I actually have three books which would be. Oh yeah, well, um, I, yeah. I mean the 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 Russia Ukraine the roots of the war. Yes, so the book which is uh, you mentioned and which um, I try to publish as open access is the entire book or chapter by chapter is actually called from from the Maidan to the Russia Ukraine war and it looks into origins of this conflict going back to Maidan, you Maidan and Maidan massacre and then looking into other conflicts like uh, Donbass war in Donbass uh, Crimean annexation far right in Ukraine. And then um, kind of uh, involvement in in this wars and conflict, and in uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, and finally would have examination of Russia-Ukraine war based on my research. So this is kind of a book which will be published uh, by um, major Western U uh, kind of, uh, academic press, and I have deadline of submitting this book manuscript, final manuscript, in um, in two months. 
and I have most of my manuscript is ready, ready and I'm just finishing this and still doing research, but um, kind of um, trying to crowdfund uh, this uh, funding for to making this book open access is entire as entire book or as uh, depending on funding or as chapters or key chapters to make it open access. And I already was successful in getting funding for my open access Maidan Massacre articles, which were which were published open access by peer review journals, and uh, and so they uh, parts of their text would be included in in my book um, and published in my book uh, for, for this season because uh, kind of it's easier to get uh, kind of uh, if you have open access it's easier to to republish them as open access without permission uh, without uh, seeking permission or paying fees to to the publishers but I think. And I think it's very important to make this information public because already my Maidan Massacre articles, open access articles, have received uh, almost um, 100,000 views and downloads of, of entire text. So I hope my book will, will be also published as, a, as open access in its entirety or um, depending on funding or chapter by chapter. There's also such possibility. And this book actually examines how conflict started, violent conflict started in Ukraine, going back to Maidan, Maidan Massacre, and how it escalated in the, into Russian annexation of Crimea, into overthrow of Yanukovych, and the civil war in Donbass, Russian military interventions in Donbass, and, um, and the role of far right in these conflicts, and also finally how it, it um, kind of, uh, uh, how Russia dramatically escalated this conflict into uh, Kind of a war between Russia and Ukraine in 2022 by invading Ukraine, and how this also became a proxy war between uh, Russia and the West in Ukraine. So this is like all a comprehensive examination of conflicts in Ukraine going back to to Maidan and its origins. But I'm also looking before this, kind of in my studies, looking to all the issues which are mentioned by the scholars, the issue of democracy, if Ukraine is democracy, which is kind of a claim which is often repeated. Uh, so I'm looking to kind of. Uh, this issue as well, and uh, looking to regional divisions in Ukraine and far right in Ukraine. So going back to, in terms of in, in terms of developments, but I think this is very crucial kind of period for this uh, for this conflict is uh, from the Maidan massacre because this uh, led to kind of to such uh, spirals kind of escalation ladder of conflicts which uh, ended with uh, this devastating war between Russia and Ukraine, which is also now a very dangerous proxy war which has um, tremendous and very negative consequences for Ukraine and Ukrainians because of this uh, conflict, which is, I think, still uh, kind of going back to to far right moment. And you mentioned Bobianchik, uh, Ivan Bobianchik. Actually, I I was the first one who uh, reported his involvement in this Maidan massacre in my paper, which I presented in the American Political Science Association annual conference in 2015 in San Francisco. I mentioned his interview in which he uh, first interview, which he gave to Lviv television in Western Ukraine, in which he admitted basically shooting police from Kalashnikov. And so again, and later in a few years afterwards, he publicly admitted in, in the Ukrainian media that he was shooting and killing police, backward police. And um, and, um, and now he's not investigating. He was, again, there was no investigation. Yeah, let's, let's, let's not give it all away. Uh, maybe right. we should just like move on to, uh, for the interest of time. Yes. But yeah, well, well, for the for the patrons, I'm going to have some comments on uh, Palestine and Russia. I've been listening to some Russia 
uh, Russian state radio, Russian propaganda radio, however you want to phrase it, the past week. And I'm very intrigued by their coverage of Palestine, which is very different from what I'm used to, even coming out of Russia, frankly. Um, we could talk more about this uh, Ivan uh, Bubenchik uh, character and some of the laws surrounding uh, what he did. Uh, more on Maidan, uh, some very ominous developments coming out of Dmitry Medvedev. And I want to talk about him as, as a maybe figure in, in Russia and some of the comments that he's been making about, you know, capturing all of Ukraine and so on and so forth and, and see where that would go. Also kind of just like Ukraine's future, I guess, um, whether or not it could shake off the status as essentially a, a vassal state and, and what that would look like. And maybe we'll, we'll have a couple other things too. So uh, for patrons, that's patreon.com slash automachination. For everybody else, thank you for sticking with us. And patrons, we will see you soon.